We are going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Job. I am getting a wave in the back. I am missing a announcement. Children ages 5 through 5th grade are dismissed for Bible explorers. Thank you for that announcement. Okay, so this morning we are going to be in Job chapter 28 through 31. Uh, but before we jump into that text, we need to remember where we are in the book of Job because a lot has happened in Job's life, and it will be very beneficial for us to understand all that has happened and all that has taken place before we look exactly at our words today. So, if we remember in chapters 1 through 2, we saw the greatness of Job. We saw that Job owned many possessions and that he had a great family. So much so that Job was considered to be the greatest of all of the people of the East. In the world's eyes, there was none greater than Job. And God also boasted about Job. God said, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? As Pastor Pat summarized in one of his sermons, people might say life was good for Job, and that Job was good to have in their lives. Yet God in his sovereignty created Job not just for this great prosperity, but also for great suffering. And we saw that this terrible suffering was brought about because God allowed Job to be afflicted by Satan. And that under God's sovereignty, Satan was allowed to try and crush Job with the goal of having Job curse God to his face. Instead, what did we see? We saw that Job fell on the ground and worshiped God. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in chapter 2, we saw Job's three friends arrive, and they came from different places, far-off lands. Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And we saw that they came to Job to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And they did a great job of that initially. When they first saw Job, they wept, they tore their robes, they sprinkled dust on their heads, and then they sat on the ground in sackcloth and ashes and mourned with him for seven days and were silent the whole time. Unfortunately, this was the height of their comfort and their sympathy, for after these seven days had passed, Job opened up his mouth and then cried out a deep lament that we looked at in chapter 3. As Pastor Pat said in his sermon on Job 3, and I'm not envious that, Job, or that Pat preached that Sunday, he said, you will not find any verses from chapter 3 on a refrigerator magnet. This chapter is very, few of the words are ever spoken um, from a pulpit, and they are very depressing, and they are a very deep cry of lament. We don't look at them that much. And then in response to Job's great lament, his friends come in with their sympathy and comfort. And I say that somewhat jokingly because these are some of the least comforting and some of the least sympathetic words that anybody who is ever suffering has ever heard. While I'm sure they meant as sympathy and comfort, they meant it for good, uh, they probably had nothing but the best of intentions in mind when they opened up their mouths and they spoke to Job, but their theology was false. It led them to an incorrect diagnosis of Job's suffering and therefore an incorrect remedy for his suffering. 
what they had meant for sympathy and comfort in reality caused more suffering and more pain for Job. And we had covered these 24 chapters over the last two weeks in a sermon series titled The Lie of Oversimplification. Because for Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they saw Job's suffering as an easy problem and an easy fix because their theology was very simple. God is just, which he is, they are correct on that. And so if the outcome of someone's life is pain and suffering, then that means that the input must be sin. And so for Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they believed that Job was a sinner. And they believed because they saw Job sinning or his suffering greater than almost anyone they've ever seen that his sin must have been terrible and that this was merely God's judgment upon Job. But Job knew that he did not have any unrepentant sin in his life. He knew that this was not the cause of his suffering. And so for 25 chapters, we saw Job and his friends kind of go back and forth between one another in this monologue-style discourse with, with each of Job's friends presenting and giving their sympathy and comfort to him, and then Job doing his best to try to respond to them and to rebuff each of their charges against him. However, um, or as we see John Calvin, um, in one of his sermons, he has an interesting take on this, he says that Job's friends have no more songs than one and no regard to whom they sing. Really, they only had one thing to say, and they didn't care what state Job was in, they were going to say their piece. And that song is that under God's justice, you always reap what you sow, always. And they aren't completely wrong in that, but they aren't completely right in it either. Can you imagine being Job at this point? You've experienced this terrible pain, this terrible suffering. I mean, lost all of your possessions, lost all of your kids. Your, your wife has kind of turned away from you and given you some terrible advice. And your close friends have come and they've rebuked you to your face for sins that you haven't committed. You're in this state of intense mourning, of deep grief, and then you have to turn and have a theological debate, and one in, the, in which your friends are accusing you of sins that you have never committed, and it's, they're here to show you deep sympathy and comfort, but instead, they're convicting you of sins you haven't committed. And so here's Job. Uh, I can imagine he is incredibly frustrated. I'm sure any of us would be at this point. At one point in chapter 16, Job tells his friends just flat out, miserable comfort. Not only was it miserable for Job, but it also became intense between him and his friends. As their conversation went on, each side had become more and more entrenched in their views towards one another. And they became stubborn. I'm sure you've been part of a conversation like this, where each side has their own thoughts and you're going at it, and no one's budging an inch at all. What typically happens in these conversations? How do they end? You either stomp off, or you just get really quiet because you realize your words are falling on deaf ears. And that's what happens with Job's friends. They realize that their words are futile. In chapter 25, Bildad, his final response is only five verses long. Zophar doesn't even bother giving a third response, as other two friends do, but he just doesn't even bother. But there's something else even more tragic that happens over the course of these 25 chapters. 
Job starts to believe the lie of oversimplification. And Job's responses during the conversation with his friends, he goes back and forth in his thinking. And we can see this in those chapters. At times, these 25 chapters, Job makes incredible statements of faith. One of them, he says, though he slay me, referring to God, though he slay me, I will put my hope in him. At other times, Job makes statements of despair and confusion towards God, saying that God hates him and that God is his adversary. At one point, he says, he has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. And Job says that of God. Job is on this emotional roller coaster with highs and lows, with twists and turns, and he is struggling to make sense of it all. And I'm sure we can each put ourselves in Job's shoes at some point in our lives. And it's on this, um, <clears throat> on this emotional roller coaster that the only words that Job is hearing from anyone else is the lie of oversimplification from his friends. And what happens to a lie when it's repeated over and over and over again? That lie seeps in and that lie begins to take root in Job But it's not that Job comes to the same conclusion as his friends, that he's a terrible sinner and that this is God's judgment on him. But instead, Job tries to oversimplify the problem by saying that his suffering is due to um, God's injustice. He believes that he is innocent, that he doesn't deserve to suffer, and that his suffering is unjust. And so, therefore, it must be God that's unjust because it's not him. So Job starts to use the theology of his three friends to justify himself, and it is really, really destructive, and it is the cause of Job's downfall here. You see, Job is experiencing what many who suffer in this life experience, that suffering doesn't just affect us physically or emotionally. It definitely does, and it's very visible when that happens. But suffering also affects us relationally and spiritually. And we see that very clearly in Job's life. We see that first with his wife when she came and told him and gave him this great advice to curse God and die. Then with his three friends and their miserable attempt to comfort and to show sympathy to Job. And we'll also read today that Job's status in his community was tarnished and he was lowered, and so his status in his community has also been affected by his suffering. But more than that, greatest of all, Job's relationship with God has been affected by this suffering. Every relationship in his life. And so if you're not already there, turn with me now to Job chapter 28. I know some of you are probably going, wow, we're just getting to the text right now. Um, we'll go somewhat quickly through this. So Job chapter 28 is all about wisdom. Uh, If you do not have a Bible this morning, grab a Bible. It's in front of you in the pew. Um, On those Bibles would be page 435. And so it's all about wisdom. And we might think, okay, this is going to be a great discourse on wisdom. We're going to hear some great truth from this, from Pastor Job Um, And we do hear some of these great truths uh, that we also see elsewhere in Scripture about wisdom. Uh, But Job, his goal in this whole chapter, 
this whole speech, it's directed towards his friends, and it's to elevate himself, and it's to lower them. Job's trying to say, I have wisdom. I know what I'm talking about. I know the situation. You guys have no clue what's going on here. So let's see what Job says. Chapter 28, Job begins by comparing and contrasting wisdom to precious stones, and the wisdom, the search of wisdom, to mining for precious stones. And so we see that Job uh, contrasts wisdom and compares wisdom to these stones, and that it, it's seen as something that's elusive and valuable. In verses 1 through 3, Job says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts to an end to darkness and searches out to the furthest limit the ore in gloom and deep darkness. Here we see that Job describes man's value of these precious stones like gold and silver and copper, so much so that man is willing to dig and cavern in the deepest and darkest places of the earth in order to obtain them. And then Job contrasts the search for precious stones to the search for wisdom. Down in verses 12 through 13, Job says, But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth and is not found in the land of the living. And so, unlike precious stones, wisdom cannot be found here on earth. You can't mine for it like silver or gold. You can't smelt it like copper from the ore. And so, Job concludes in verses 23 through 28 that wisdom can only be found in fearing God. And this is a great conclusion. He says in 23 through 28, God understands the way to it and he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and appointed, apportioned the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw and declared, he established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. But returning to Job's ultimate point and purpose in all of this, Job is saying here, I have wisdom and you three don't. I fear God. I turn away from evil. You friends don't. I know what I'm talking about. I know where wisdom comes from. You guys have no clue. And those are Job's final words to his friends. Job concludes his speech with his friends. He's rested his case with them. He is wise they are foolish. Now with his friends dealt with, Job turns to the other one who has frustrated him during this time. And he, Job makes his final case to him. And who is that other one that Job is frustrated with? He is God. Job is frustrated with God at this point. And Job, throughout these 25 chapters of going back and forth with his friends, has cried out to God for him to give an answer and so far, God has not. And Job's frustrations here have reached a boiling point. Now, in chapters 29 through 31, I want you to picture Job like an impassioned attorney before a courtroom, making his final defense before he rests his case. Because that is what Job is doing here. It's all been leading up to this moment. No punches are going to be held back by Job. Job is going to bring every minute detail to the surface that proves his innocence, and he's going to have it examined, and he's going to show that he alone is in the right. In his final defense, we're going to see that Job has two main goals. The first is to demonstrate his innocence, and the second is to prompt God to answer him. 
because Job believes that he deserves a direct answer from God as to why he is suffering. And I want you to hear in Job's words his frustrations and his pains because they are all very present here. In chapter 29, Job describes his past glory before he endured this terrible suffering. Oh, that I were as in months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was my tent, and when the Almighty was yet with me, and when my children were all around me. Since he is suffering and since he hasn't received an answer from God as to why, Job believes that God has abandoned him. And this is a false belief. And now we see that Job longs for how things once were before all of this suffering took place and his entire life came crashing down. When he still had his possessions, when he still felt the presence of God in his life and called God a friend, and when he still had his children alive. He goes on in verses 6 through 20 to describe how his prosperity and his status then enabled him to have authority in his community and how he used that authority to execute justice and uphold righteousness. And then lastly, in verses 21 through 25, Job describes how his words and his opinion mattered. It feels good to be mattered, doesn't it? He was someone who was highly revered by his neighbors and his community, and life was good for Job. And so Job longed for those days to return. And then in chapter 30, there's a shift. Job moves and contrasts his past glory with his current gloom, and he does so using the conjunction, but. Life was good for Job. Life was great for Job. But then this incredible suffering happens, and his entire life falls apart before his eyes. And in chapter 30, Job goes on to list how his physical suffering has been seen as a scandal by his neighbors. And Job is now treated as not someone to revere, not someone to listen to for advice, but now someone to laugh at and someone to mock. In verses 1 through 8, Job describes how those who used to listen to him and wait for his counsel in the previous chapter now instead laugh at him and scorn him. At this point, Job feels as if the entire world has turned against him. Remember how earlier in chapter 2, Job's own wife, who is suffering as well, tells Job to curse God and die. And then we see, not short, shortly thereafter, Job's three friends who have come to show him sympathy and show him comfort have done exactly the opposite and have accused him of sins that he has never committed. And his community, where he was once esteemed and held as someone to revere, who they viewed him as the greatest of all of the people of the East, that's quite a title for a man, is now seen as nothing more than a laughingstock and someone to mock. Job feels as if the entire world is turned against him, and it's hard to see where he's wrong in this point. However, we see that the greatest tragedy of all here in chapter 30 is that Job has also falsely convicted himself that God has turned against him. Chapter 30, verses 19 through 23. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. 
You lift me up on the wind and you make me ride on it and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all the living. And then after all of this, in chapter 31, Job makes his final appeal to God of his innocence. And then we see here Job lays out in chapter 31 seven ways in which he has not sinned and is therefore undeserving of this suffering. And let's remember Job's two goals in all of this, this last defense, this case before God. It's to demonstrate his innocence, number one, and number two, to prompt God to answer him, or maybe better yet, to force God into a corner to answer him. In this chapter, Job denies living a deceitful life. He denies committing adultery. He denies unjustly treating his workers. He denies being uncharitable with his possessions. He denies materialism. He denies rejoicing when his enemies suffer. And lastly, he denies mismanaging his land. And if these seven things seem kind of random, if you go back in the last 25 chapters, you will see that Job's friends accuse him of each of these things as sins of which he may have committed, but actually did not. And so Job says, I'm innocent of all of these possibilities. With Job's innocence now declared, Job concludes with what he believes is the final blow to God. That knockout punch that's finally going to bring God to his knees and make him give an answer to Job as to why he is suffering. And please notice the language I just used. Job really does believe that it is God who needs to come and give an answer to him, as if God is accountable to Job. So let's read Job's final words towards God here. Job 31, verses 35 through 37. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give it to him as an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. I hope you heard the arrogance in Job's words because they reek of it. And it is how Job concludes his case before God. Job believes that his suffering is unjust because he is totally innocent. He doesn't deserve this suffering and that his suffering is a result of God somehow messing up and that God needs now to come and to answer him why he messed up. At the end of verse 40, it says, the words of Job are ended. In his final defense, it's been made. Last words of Job have been spoken here. And with nothing left to say, Job now sits and waits for God to answer him. The picture in my mind I see is like Jonah sitting and finding a great spot to watch the city of Nineveh be destroyed because Job has convinced himself that like Jonah, he can control God and make God do his bidding. To come and to answer him for this terrible tragedy, this terrible suffering that has been brought upon his life. And unfortunately for Job, or maybe better yet, fortunately for Job, this is not how God operates. And Job probably knew this before his suffering, but the weight of his suffering 
the effects that we see of it, and that terrible, terrible theology espoused by his three friends who came to give him sympathy and comfort him have polluted Job's mind and ultimately have polluted his relationship with God. So here our passage ends with Job sitting and Job waiting for God to come and give him an answer. Let's conclude with some final thoughts and then some applications. First, we need to acknowledge that Job has been through a lot. I don't think any of us here are envious of what has taken place in Job's life. Over the course of these 31 chapters, we have seen Job suffer physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. And any of us who have been through grief and suffering, no matter how small or how great, know this to be true. That grief and suffering don't just affect one area of our lives. We don't just compartmentalize grief and suffering in one area and live the rest of our lives as if nothing else has happened in the others. Suffering and grief affects all of our lives, all of our relationships, some great, some small. It also affects our relationship to God. And so here is Job. He's suffering. He's afflicted. And he is sitting on this dung heap. He's lost everything. He feels as if his wife has turned on him. His friends who have oversimplified his problem and even accused him of doing wrong, he feels that they have turned on him. He's experienced his community turn on him. And now, worst of all, Job has convinced himself that God has turned on him. Remember how Job reacted to his suffering way back in chapter 1? Seems like forever ago. Job started off worshiping God, declaring God's sovereignty in this bold, incredible statement, saying that the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But here in 31, after some time has passed, some not-so-sympathetic words have been said and some additional pain and frustration has been heaped upon Job, Job concludes by justifying himself rather than God. Something changed in Job's thinking over these 31 chapters. Job was on an emotional roller coaster during this entire time, and Job bought into this lie espoused by his friends, the lie of oversimplification. And here Job believed that he is innocent, which is correct. Job's suffering was not a result of his unrepentant sin. So Job is half right. However, Job's folly is that he bought into the lie that those who are righteous shouldn't suffer. So Job believes that he is innocent, and because he's innocent, he should not be suffering. Therefore, Job's only logical conclusion at the end of chapter 31 is that God is either not sovereign, which is bad, or that God is either not just, which is also bad. And so like his friends, Job oversimplifies his problem. He tries to oversimplify his suffering. He believed as if his what his friends did and what we can still do today, that he had it all figured out, that he knew every little detail, every iota, every dot. He thought he understood it all, and he thought he was the one who saw the clearest, even above God. Job lost sight of the fact of Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are our ways his ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways than our ways, and his thoughts than our thoughts. 
And because Job lost sight of God's sovereignty, his conclusion is wrong, and his relationship with God is now broken. Job is correct that unrepentant sin is not responsible for his suffering, but Job is flat out wrong that God somehow messed up and didn't uphold his end of the bargain. Job justifies himself, he condemns God, and then demands that God explain himself. And as we will see in a few weeks, Job, or God calls out Job for this in chapter 40, verse 8. But for us now, we see from Job's example what we'll call our sermon in a nutshell. Just one sentence summarizing everything. When we take God's sovereignty out of the equation, we lose understanding and we walk a dangerous path of arrogance and ignorance in opposition to God. I'll say that again. When we take God's sovereignty out of the equation, we lose understanding and we walk a dangerous path of arrogance and ignorance in opposition to God. Now, there will be times in your life, and maybe you are in one of those times right now, where you will be tempted to buy, as Job was, this lie of oversimplification. Maybe you're like Job's friends, and you're trying to explain the suffering that you see around you in this world and make sense of it all. Or maybe you're more like Job, trying to understand and make sense of the suffering that happens in your own life. And I am telling you, I am literally preaching at you, do not buy that lie. Don't buy it. It is dangerous. It is destructive. Just look at Job right here. Look at the difference between Job in chapter 1 and Job in chapter 31. In chapter 1, Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he goes from that to chapter 31. Oh, that I might have one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. What a change that is in Job. Instead, when times in your life arise and you see or experience suffering, remember the words in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are our ways his ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. We cannot begin to comprehend all that God is doing here and now in our world, and we can't comprehend what God is doing in eternity. Remember, there's a whole other level of what God is doing. We saw a glimpse of that in Job 1 and 2. He is God. We are not. He is eternal. We're a vapor. He is all-knowing. We don't even know our own hearts. He is holy, and our our best is but filthy rags. Instead, we simply need to trust in Him. Trust God as God. He's really good at it, and we are not. From this, we also see the importance of godly friends, counselors, and teachers. Looking at the evolution of Job from 1 to 31, from the beginning of his sufferings until now, 
we see just how destructive this lie of oversimplification is and how destructive bad theology preached from friends and counselors and teachers can be to your life. Job's friends who came to show him sympathy and comfort, two great things, came and actually preached half-truths at him and did so in an ungracious way, causing him more pain and more suffering. The importance of godly friends, counselors, and teachers is found not just here in the book of Job, it's found all over the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. Many times when people have stumbled in the Bible, it's because they were receiving terrible, terrible theology. But we here as a faith family are, I think, truly blessed to have one another. As I look around this room, I see many God-fearing men and women who speak the truth of the whole gospel into one another's lives, in the good and in the bad. And we get to be the hands and feet of Christ to one another, but we don't just get to do that to one another, but we get to go out and flow out into this world every single week, and we get to be the hands and feet of Christ and show comfort and sympathy, hopefully better than some of Job's friends do, but if not, we can still repent of that and turn to God and um, obtain a better theology and come back and sympathize and comfort with people more, but we get to do that with the rest of the world and take the gospel with us as we go. And as we've also heard this morning, Job falsely believed that his confidence was found solely in his innocence. Job believed his confidence was in himself, standing before God. He thought that he could boldly approach God, as he describes, like a prince ascending to the throne. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, when God does appear before Job, Job is completely and totally undone. The case that Job built for himself, his final defense, all of it crumbles beneath him. I don't think Job even remembered a single word of it when God showed up in front of him face to face. Job believed that he was standing on his own works and that was enough for him. But they weren't enough for Job and they aren't enough for us today. However, the great news of the gospel is that we have a sure foundation, one which will never crumble, not even in the day of judgment. We have someone who, right now as I am finishing up preaching, is standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We have a Savior. We have an Advocate. We have a great high priest who allows us to approach the very throne of God boldly, not because of our works, as Job believed that he could, but because of his completed works upon the cross. Job was sadly mistaken, but we can know the truth and follow after it. That is only through Christ that we can boldly approach the throne of God, not through our works, but through his completed works. Christ died on the cross for our sins. The spotless Lamb of God bore our sins in his body on the tree. For our sake, Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through his death, our sins have been completely paid for, once and for all. And through his resurrection, we inherit the newness of his life. And for those who have accepted this free gift, who are here this morning, we have become co-heirs with Christ. And now when the Father looks down on us, he no longer sees our sin and our shame and our guilt, but he sees the perfection and the beauty and the majesty of his Son. 
Our confidence should fully be in him, not in ourselves. But if you're here this morning and up to this point in your life, you have rejected this good news, this great gift that God is offering to you, I beg of you to reconsider. If you want to know how to accept this free gift, come up and talk to one of the elders who was up here this morning. Talk to myself. Talk to someone who brought you. We would love to share this message with you. Because we can stand boldly before God. We can stand on this solid foundation because Christ has made a way. And we can know the full truth of the gospel. And even when suffering and pain comes in this world, and we may never know why on this side of eternity, we can have assurance and trust that God, God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So let's pray. Lord, we just come before you just so thankful for who you are that we aren't standing before you on a foundation built by our own works. Um, Lord, I can stand up here and think of sins I haven't committed, but even those before you are filthy rags. Lord, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ, which is... Oh, greater than all of our sin. And we thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of suffering and pain, when we might be trying to figure out why, we can just rest in the full assurance of knowing you, that you have a perfect plan, that you are sovereign over all things, that you are working all things for our good and for your glory. And it's when we fully trust in you and rest in you that we experience the full peace and joy that you desire for us to. And Lord, we thank you for this day that is coming, as Pastor Pat read this morning, that you will make all things new. And as you've promised, it is coming soon. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray all these things in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.